welcome again to another edition of Aviation Past and Present here at Coast Access Radio. Todd Zayner with the important gentleman, John Skeen, <laughs> who looks very, very good. John, as well as the new glasses, you're preparing for Movember. I'm delighted. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for noticing, Todd. I have noticed. Movember. Uh, this is um, an initiative by the Kapiti Manshed uh, as a fundraiser. And so far we have five uh, gentlemen, gentlemen true, who are growing moustaches of various shapes. And um, apparently people are giving us ticks in the boxes for style and growth and what have you. So. Ah, well, well done. Yeah. It looks good on the radio. <laughs> going to talk I'm, about... I'm pleased it's on the radio. <laughs> I want to talk about something Canadian. I don't think we've, in the years we've been doing this program, we've mentioned anything to do with Canada. Mm-hmm. This is the Avro Arrow. Now say that fast. <laughs> Avro Arrow. The Avro Arrow. From Canada in the 1950s, John. Yes, you're quite right. Uh-huh. I thought it was timely to maybe um, widen the range of airplanes I would talk about. Mm-hmm. And the Arrow was a, 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 an easy contender. I've been interested in this airplane for a long time. And we'll come back to that where the interest started a bit later on. Okay. But a very... Um, very efficient, uh, following the engineering drawings uh, built to specifications by the Canadian Air Force, and it turned out to be an extremely uh, popular airplane to fly, and it did its job as well. So, I mean, you think of Canada, and you don't think of any defence force at all, really. Canada's just a happy little country, not so little, (laughs) (laughs) but I guess Uh, somewhere along the lines... They're pretty much aligned with the United States and not too far away from Russia. Well, therein lies the story. Uh, the Canada was a bit like the meat and sandwich in a way. Uh, at, um, at the end of the Second World War, um, the, the Cold War began, and uh, America was concerned that the Russians were building a new class of jet-powered bombers that could attack America through the back door via Canada. Hence the strategic importance of this new airplane. This looks as though it's way ahead of its time. I mean, this was developed in the early 1950s. It was, yes. Uh Um, The Canadians thought long and hard about what sort of airplane they would build. And it had to be supersonic so it could get up to the Arctic quickly. Mm. It needed a crew of two uh, to share the workload of um, the missile armament and you know navigation and everything. And the Canadian Air Force wrote quite a stringent specification, and the airplane was the result. And it, and it was going to give them exactly what they wanted. This had the capability of flying, what, about Mark II? Mark II, yes, yeah. twin engine, um, huge fuel load, you know, there and back from, you know, almost around the Great Lakes area, all the way up to the Antarctic and back, and other airfields along the way. It was a big delta-wing airplane. Yeah, and that's, again, that's where you look at that and you think, you know, that sort of angle, I don't know if we should say delta, but that's another story. (laughs) With the the angle of those, you know, you think of the Concorde and you think of those sorts of Mm -hmm. planes way ahead of their time. Yep, well, that was the, uh, that was de-rigger design for the, at the time to get the speeds and so forth. Mm. And it hasn't changed a great deal to this day. Yeah. Now, Avro isn't a new name as such, is it? When you um, look not, at that, it's... Not at all. No? It came from the other side of the Atlantic? <laughs> uh, 
the Avro company uh, in the UK was probably most famous for the Avro Lancaster that they built in wartime. And it's probably a little-known fact that a, a large number of Avro Lancasters were actually built in Canada by Avro Canada. Oh, really? And they were ferried across the Atlantic to the UK um, by the famous Greenland, Iceland, north of Scotland route. Right. Um, brave boys back then. Where in Canada? Did they just have the, the one yard where they built them, <laughs> or did they have several areas? No, there was just one factory. Uh, it was in a place called Malton in Ontario, and now called, well, the area is called the Toronto Pearson International Airport. Oh, okay. So not far from the Great Lakes area. Yeah, so it's it's not the complete eastern seaboard. I mean, that's sort of, you know, the middle, almost the middle, middle the eastern part <laughs> of Canada, if you call it that, or Americans would probably say Midwest, that, that area. <laughs> oh, well, my, my go-to point is that it was near the Great Lakes, if that helps. Mm. Um, quite an amazing, you know, thought and design for this particular aircraft. Yep. And there were several prototypes, you know, as is the case oh. with these types of planes. The the genesis, if you like, of this of this CF one hundred five Arrow was an interesting aircraft called the Canuck. Um, it was called the CF one hundred. It was a very early twin engine jet fighter. It was um, just post-war, and it was a very successful airplane, did its job well, uh, quite a big, clunky, chunky-looking airplane, but aerodynamically nice, big engines, the whole thing had a lot of, lot of stuff going for it. Stayed yeah. in service right up until the 80s. Did it that far? The Canadians loved it, yeah. It's quite, and from memory, that's quite an indigenous word, uh, Canuck or Canuck. Canuck, sorry, yeah. I apologise. Oh, yep. You're one or the other. <laughs> no, no, but... Anyway, as I say, it went in, right into the 80s. But while it was being a success in its own right, um, design teams were looking at going higher, further, faster, as was the case at the time. Mm. And so it went through a lot of development uh, aircraft. So they kept up with, I was going to say kept up with the Joneses, but it was more keeping up with the Russians <laughs> and their developments and so on. Uh, it's an interesting period of history because a lot of really good aerodynamic work was done by the Germans, particularly in the, the transonic, supersonic era. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found that by having a nice standard aerofoil section, like a straight-winged airplane, but if they tilted it backwards into a swept wing, the airflow approaching the aircraft thought it was a much thinner wing and it could actually get through the sound barrier easier. Oh, okay. It's quite a tricky thing. Nice but invention. Was that the sort of thing they, they call wave drag? Is that something ah, to do with it? wave drag. No. Wave drag is, occurs when you try to push a standard straight-winged airplane into a transonic area approaching supersonic speed. Mm-hmm. And the engines of the day weren't powerful enough to push through this wave drag phenomena, and it became known as the sound barrier. Ah. So there's a wee bit of history for you there. Okay. Um, so they went through several types of prototypes and ended up with the design for the CF-105, the Arrow, which flew beautifully. But it was mm. a delta wing, which combined the swept wing principles plus a good wing area and good room for fuel. So it was a, yeah, it was a nice, uncomplicated designed airplane. It was just big. 
But in amongst all that, they had other CFs, didn't they? You know, from the CF, I'm oh, sure, yes. 100 through to 101, 102. The 103 is something <laughs> interesting too. Uh, it was um, it was thought that the shape of it, which was kind of a, a hybrid swept wing, straight wing design, so it had a big sweep leading edge and a straight trailing edge. Mm. But it did get through the, the transonic into supersonic in a dive. So they knew they were on the right track. Um, it's what can, cool. what it's, can I say? It's quite a <laughs> it's quite a slick looking piece of equipment for you know the early nineteen fifties when you see this and you've got you know design proposals and, and you know all sorts. All sorts. It's worth googling if you get a chance. It's very I will say Dassault Mirage esque type look on, as a side view. It looks similar to the path the French were going down. Just well, interesting. Yeah, maybe there was some influence. With the I and the can't find French. any hint yeah. of that. It was just the fashion of the day, I suspect. Right. Um, there's a whole history also of, of different variants, and they do look quite different from the CF-100 yeah. to the CF-105. They were all stepping stones. Yeah. All stepping stones. But they did eventually just pick the this lovely big delta uh, for the reasons explained that was good for supersonic flight. Uh, could carry a lot of fuel in it, and it was a, a strong wing to build. It, was, mm. uh, it just it fitted the bill beautifully. <laughs> um, amazing, and it could um, go on long journeys. It had big tanks, fuel tanks. It had, uh, I believe, tankage in the fuselage and, and the wing as well. Yeah. Well, it had to, had to go a long way to go and meet the Russians up in the Arctic Circle and come home safely. Yeah, quite a distance, <laughs> I, I suppose. A long distance, yep. Um, and I guess they, they probably flew pretty high, high altitude also. Oh, yes, yes. I don't like to put figures around things like that, but I suspect they was happy at 40,000 feet, 50,000 mm. feet up there. Yeah, that's... that's uh, onboard oxygen, pressurised aeroplane. Yeah, or well, when you yeah. think of you know standard commercial aircraft, about 37,000, 38,000 feet yeah, generally. There. And the Concorde was... 60,000 Yeah, the Concorde was higher. Yeah. Yeah, it did, did go they higher. the sky to itself up there, pretty much. Yeah, well, they said that, you know, on the highest points, you could actually see the curvature of the Earth. Yep, it was on one, of, one of the selling points of Concorde. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's fascinating, really. <laughs> so at one time, this particular aircraft was thought to be the world's fastest, I guess. Oh. For a period. <laughs> More than likely. More than likely. Yeah. Uh, everybody was striving for uh, bigger, higher, faster, you know, better arm. That was the goals most people were chasing. And so there are similarities if you look at around the airplanes. Mm. But the Americans decided they didn't like that from, from another well, power. There, therein lies a tale. Mm. They, they were quite keen that the Canadians look after their back door, as I mentioned before the Russians coming down through the Arctic Circle and so forth. But they were also concerned that this airplane could be a winner and other people would want to buy it and not buy the American planes that were coming along. Ah. <laughs> there is a, as I said before, there's a little uh, small end to the story I'll talk about later because there was parallels in Britain happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the, the Canadian Prime Minister stepped into this and then decided... Shut the program down for this aircraft. Well, this is the the crux of the story. Uh, 
Mr. Diefenbaker and his government were voted in around about the midpoint of the uh, development of the airplane. Mm. And subsequently, during Mr. Diefenbaker's time in office, uh, the prototypes flew. It was seen to be an ex- exceedingly great airplane. And um, I think there was pressure put on the Canadian government at that time to do something about it. It was a very expensive program. It was probably almost too expensive for the Canadians to support, but they had done it, and uh, it was going to be a, a world leader. Um, they even developed um, two engines for it. Uh, well, sorry, I'll rephrase that. They developed a, a, a very good engine, of which two of them were used in mm. the aircraft. Yeah, uh, It was called an Iroquois um, and again, it was a, a better engine than what the Americans had provided for the prototype aircraft. Oh, okay. It was um, chunkier, had better thrust, fuel consumption was as good as anybody's. Just a nice engine. So the prototype were Pratt & Whitney's? Pratt & Whitney engines, yeah. yes, the J75s. Yeah, and people who know something about jet engines and so on, Pratt & Whitney has been around, and you know, it's a, a name synonymous with, oh, well, uh, with the best. The best, yeah, yeah. They, Powered most of the airplanes in World War Two with their mm. big radial piston engines. Yeah, uh, American aircraft, anyway. So, yes. So, what was so different about the Iroquois engine? Oh, it was just well designed, mm. and it was designed to be rugged and powerful, which are things you probably quite need in an airplane that's going to fly over miles and miles of snow and ice. Mm. It was slightly more powerful than the the Pratt and Whitney. Um, and it was tailor-made to fit in the airplane. Now, designing an airplane around an engine is one thing, but uh, designing the engine to fit in the airplane from scratch is, is another good trick. But this thing was made to fit the plane beautifully. Mm. The engines sort of sit in a tunnel, if you like, inside the airframe. And if you, anything is made a bit big, it won't fit down the hole. Um, so after the experience with the J-75, apparently the Iroquois was a, just a dream engine. We'll leave it at that. Any of these still in existence? The engines. The engines, the, the planes? Uh, it was all scrapped. And I think there might be one engine in a museum, and there's certainly a replica of the Arrow in a museum. Mm. But everything else was, else was cut up, and just, that was it. No, no chance of it being resurrected. There we are. The plane itself was designed for two people to be in the cockpit. Uh, yes, there were um, the two of <laughs> a crew of two sitting in tandem. Okay. But the unusual feature of this cockpit was the canopy was hinged on the outer parts of the fuselage and it folded over the top of the crew, and it was sealed on the centre line. It's the only airplane I've ever seen that has a cockpit like that. Yeah. I'm not sure why they did it. I think it was for aerodynamic reasons mostly. Uh, it was had big thick frames, so the pilot you know, had maybe a little bit of trouble seeing out. Make it hard to <clears throat> get out of the plane when it's been <laughs> flying for hours and standing on something very hot. <laughs> no, not quite like that, though. Well, uh, I was thinking more of an, in need of an injection that just the halves of the cockpit would fall away and you just pop out through the through the gap. Yeah. But a very standard instrumentation for the day. It was mostly all pre-electronic, uh, though that was coming along. Uh, but the crew loved flying it. It just 
it was just an airplane that was right from the start. There'd be some flight over Canada, and then we could fly over, well, as you say, Iceland and Greenland, Scotland. Oh, that, around there. well, yeah, well, yes, in the footsteps of the Lancaster. <clears throat> Quite something. Mm-hmm. So that's the cockpit. That's now, the cockpit. Now here we go. Talk about the Avro Arrow rocket. Yes. Launched test models. Yes. This is quite something. Yes. Um, they, they weren't too far from Lake Ontario and they thought it would be a wonderful idea to actually uh, fly some test models but have them take off under rocket power. Mm-hmm. And then they would uh, watch them flying uh, along and they could safely land into the lake without hitting anybody, which yeah. was always a bit of an issue. <laughs> what, about, what about people so. fishing? But that's a nice <laughs> So these models were about, what, one-eighth scale? They were one-eighth scale model. They were almost two metres in length, I would suggest. Um, and they were powered by this um, it was a solid-fueled rocket. Just chucked them up in the sky, and the model would come off the top of this rocket assembly, and, and they could see how fast it would go in a dive. And right. It was radio-controlled, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. There's... Some bits of it left, and people to this day are still looking for the remains of some of these test rockets and and the aircraft. Oh, really? In in Lake Ontario? Yep. Um, September last year, they found another piece. Did they? uh, It's it's shown on your little picture there. That's quite something. Yeah, Yeah. you'll see the size of it. It's about two metres long. Okay. It did its job. Uh, It sent back valuable data, and it pretty much confirmed that what they were doing was on the right track. Mm. So they think enough of it to still look for bits to this day. Well, it didn't last that long in the sense that, you know, it's something that, as you say, was scuttled somewhat by the... The Americans? Uh, We'll call it the the political situation of the day. Uh All right. Um, Um, (laughs) I'll, I'll just chatter on about this for a minute, if you don't mind. Please. Um, Avro and their engineers built this aircraft, which was pretty much record-breaking, and it had, there was no compromise. It was built for the job. Expensive, but it worked. Um, it turned out that maybe Canada actually couldn't afford it. So it's... I don't know if you call it a blessing in disguise. It was a real shame that the, it got cancelled for whatever reason. Thousands of people lost their jobs. Um, It was rumoured that American uh, aviation companies, including NASA, were standing outside the gate on the day that the cancellation was announced, offering the engineers big salaries and interesting jobs back in America. Interesting. Interesting. It was all part of, I mean, Canada was going through an interesting celebration Point fifty years of powered flight in Canada, basically mm. almost to the day. Yes, and then all of a sudden, this big project was yes. announced as cancelled. It's, it's all over, and to this day, it's known as Black Friday. Ah. So you know, uh, yeah. it was just—it was just so cruelly done. It, there was no hints, and it was people were just told to pack up and go home and take nothing with you. Well, it's funny you say that because there's an interesting little story about uh, one of the senior draftsmen. His name's Ken Barnes. Mm-hmm. And so what did he do when he heard that, that news? 
What did he <laughs> reportedly do? Well, he uh, was told to destroy his blueprints. Um, fortunately or otherwise, he hid them in the basement of his home. <laughs> and they were discovered quite a long time later. Yeah. So After he died. After he died, yeah. So where are they now? Are they in a museum? In a museum, yeah. 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 Yes, it was a, a tough time. Um, as I say, a lot of Americans went to work uh, in America. I'm sorry, a lot of Canadians went to work Canadian. in America. Uh, and quite a few of them were involved with NASA. And, you know, a lot of NASA's success is due to the Canadian brains. They used to make there was something like 50,000 jobs lost because of all this. Exactly. That's quite yes. something. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a little joke going around that said um, the best thing that happened to America was the cancellation of the Avro Arrow. So you, <laughs> you can read into that whatever you like. Yeah, and it's a bit like saying um, the IQ of the United States um, <laughs> increased significantly and so did the IQ of Canada when people left. There's some joke about that somewhere. That sounds like one of Mr Muldoon's jokes. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, that's, I remember that about Australians. Mm -hmm. We won't go there. But would you describe it as a failure, this whole program? Oh. It's hard to know if that's the right word. It was a wonderful airplane, and as an airplane person, I think it was a national disaster. Um, depends on the financial side of things. But it would have made a great export airplane. I think a lot of countries would have uh, possibly been quite happy to buy it. Somewhat unique. Yeah. It was very unique. It was purpose-built, beautifully made, did the job, yeah. never killed anybody. Uh, you know, that's just... Sad, just sad. Yeah. Um, you know, the Canadians were fairly prolific during the war also. You know, the factory was producing all sorts of iconic aircraft at the time well, during the war. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, the two important ones that come to mind were the Hawker Hurricanes. And there you can tell a Hawker Hurricane bit that was made in Canada because it's got the Canadian Car and Foundry Company stamped on it. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Um, and also the the Avro Lancasters. I don't know any numbers of how many were produced, but it was certainly um, a huge. Uh, uh, goodness me, what's the word I'm struggling for here, Todd? It made a huge difference to the amount of aircraft that the RAF could fly over Germany, and and the defence of the UK. Mm. Um, people forget that uh, how much the Canadians helped both by building the aircraft and supplying crew. Yeah. Yeah, when you think about it, you know, Canada's first jet plane um, was flying in the 1940s, yes, 1949. 1949, the, it was um, called the C-102 Jetliner, and it was a passenger aircraft. Gee. And it was um, world, the world's second jet airliner after the Comet from the mm. UK. So they had a bit of a track record. Yeah. But I, they've since gone on to make really interesting airplanes in the uh, commercial field. Mm. Now, they had, what, the prototypes, they had, what, about five or so initially? I, Yes, I believe so. They decided not to build prototype aircraft. They, they, they sort of went in straight into the production phase, if you like. So the first ones off the mm. production line were production aircraft, which were used as as prototypes yeah. but they weren't designed as prototypes per se they were the real deal out of the hangar you know mm. 
Obviously, the designers, the, the workers, the personnel, if they went on to work for NASA, they must have been fairly highly thought of. Oh, yes. They were the best. Mm. <laughs> they were used, um, and I believe there were some 30 people came from Canada to work for NASA, and they went to work on the, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo projects. So mm. they were definitely guys who got the Americans onto the moon. <laughs> it's quite something. Yes. It, uh, the other thing I want, to, I want to mention about this, John, you've got a, the most amazing book just simply called The Arrow, and this is essentially all the instructions to get this thing up and flying. Yes, uh, it's been in my library probably for the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, I think I bought it online, actually. It was written um, at the same time the aircraft was being built, so it was, uh, what can I say, just a, a really, really interesting book. Um, it, fi- it focuses on the pilot's operating instructions and for the Royal Canadian Air Force's um, the plans they had for testing the aircraft uh, accepting it into their service and where they were going to um, build the bases yeah, The it's, book itself has had several incarnations so it's not the, the original original one from, uh, <laughs> from no. then but it's certainly got all the original instructions A lot of the uh, instructions in it are dated 1958 so that uh, it was the real deal back then. Mm. I'm glad to have it. Ah. I see a replica was built um, a few years ago. Oh, it was finished about 2016, um, the Avro, Arrow 203 replica. Yes. That'd be quite something. Well, 203 was its service number, basically, mm-hmm. in, in Canadian or proposed Canadian service. A really top-notch replica um, built by volunteers or over about a 10-year period, and it was in the Canadian Air and Space Museum collection. I assume it didn't fly. It was just a replica. It was just, just a, a replica. Just to yep. sit there you quite happily You could sit in the cockpit and it looked the real deal. Um, unfortunately, the, the museum itself was a, a victim of the expansion of the, the Toronto airport, and so the replica ended up uh, in storage, and basically it was outside under tarpaulins. And oh. it doesn't do replicas an awful lot of good. No, not really. No. Um, but yeah. since then, the good news is that uh, a gentleman who owns the Edenvale Aerodrome got wind of this um, the state of this replica and has um, taken care of it, and it's now back under cover, and it looks the uh, multi-million dollar airplane it was. Mm. And bits of this were even shown on the Discovery Channel. Uh, yes, um, you can find an awful lot about it on YouTube. It's mm. worth the effort. Uh, mm. I quite like YouTube. <laughs> well, what a fascinating aircraft! Just mm-hmm. about at the end of the program, the Avro yes. Arrow. So look that up, Avro A V R O Arrow mm-hmm. aircraft. And as you say, look on YouTube, Google it, and so on. Mm-hmm. You might even have a few bits and pieces. You've got your own <laughs> website too, John. Which is I have also a website now. Yes, yeah. uh, www dash tales.com uh, please feel free to look at it and uh, I do a monthly newsletter now and if you wish the newsletter um, please talk to me that's that's good mm-hmm. there'll be an email address there as well mm-hmm. to get through so yeah look at John's new website as he says www.aviation-tales.com mm. very good I'm, I'm very happy with it yeah. looks very swish very swish yeah. <laughs> 
propeller still going around? It is, yes. Uh-huh. That helps. And I've even got an updated uh, picture of me sitting at this desk talking to you. That's great. Yep. So yep. Very happy. Well, John, always a pleasure to catch up every four weeks. Something interesting, something new, old, different. Mm-hmm. That's what the program's all about. Yes. Aviation past and present. Maybe we should say and future. And future. We've done well, that as well. goodness me, my, <laughs> my crystal ball's a bit cloudy these days, uh, Todd, <laughs> but uh, I will keep on telling people about airplanes and people of interest. And yeah. There we are. We're delighted. John, thank you very much, and we'll catch up with you again in four weeks. I'll be back. John Skeen, Aviation Past and Present, here at Coast Access Radio. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.